0: Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scalin along with Blair Manton from Sands and Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. Uh, something that we haven't talked about on the show before, or at least very much about, are how um, well small business owners or business owners in general tend can have made mm-hmm. mistakes. When faced with financial difficulty, I think financial difficulty would come up pretty quickly for mm-hmm. a small business owner or a business owner. You certainly be aware of it. Um, let's talk about let's talk about the differences. I, one of the pieces that I was interested in is about that personal liability right. being a, being incorporated or a limited entity. Uh, and that personal liability and how those can play yeah, against each other.
1: Yeah, let's start there because, yeah, we focus really on individuals and on small businesses. So I see people, you know, every day of the week who they've got either, you know, a small corporation, you know, maybe they're a drywaller or a contractor, or a truck driver, a real estate agent, but they've set up a corporation. And I see people that, you know, just have proprietorships, which means essentially they're doing work in their own name. What's the big difference between them? Well, yeah, what is the yeah, big difference? And it's funny when you ask people that have a corporation, you know, why did you incorporate what were the benefits you were hoping for? Quite often, they can't articulate them. They're just not sure. They said, oh, my lawyer told me it might be good, but, you know, hey, hey I'm just incorporated and that's that. So essentially, when you incorporate, you're creating a separate legal entity. So you and myself, Elaine, we're both separate legal entities, and if yes. we created a corporation, that would be like a legally separate person. So that person can have assets, that person can have obligations, liabilities, and that person can essentially carry on business. The reason why you would incorporate is to try to put some distance between you you in the business. So you would say, you know, if this business doesn't go that well, um, I don't want to have all the liability to myself personally. So you'd set it up as an incorporated business with the idea that you would have some limitation of your liability. What we're going to talk about a little bit today is most of the time that assumption doesn't play out. You know, it's corporation. Theoretically, it limits your liability, but a lot of the liabilities a business can incur, they're going to follow you. If you are the director, if you're the person that's operating that business, regardless of whether it's incorporated or not, you may still be on the hook, which kind of frustrates some of the benefits of incorporation. So we're going to go into that a little bit.
0: Okay, so if I, yeah. so if I have my own business and I incorporate... Then, if, some, if it doesn't go well, then my assets. Can get attached to the failure or to they can go after my assets. Is that what you're saying?
1: So potentially that could be the the end state. Okay. So what would happen is you know the business is going to start operating right, and the business is going to start incurring some obligations typically, and then we're going to hit our first frustration of legal liability. Here is no one is going to loan business or agree you know to advance credit to a corporation that has you know no history, no assets, sure. no liabilities. It makes sense. So before anybody's going to you know put themselves at risk probably going to make the owner or the director guarantee personally. So exactly what you said, Elaine, if that business can't pay, they're going to come to you personally to, to basically come after those amounts. Now that's for things that you consciously sign on for, but there are things that you're automatically liable just when you have a corporation by being a director.
0: Okay. Let's talk about those. What are the automatic ones?
1: Well, so some of them are just pure common sense and you would really want it to be set up this way. And one of them is employee wages. So you can't start a corporation, tell everybody that you're going to pay them wages, and then suddenly, you know, go off in the middle of the night and not pay them and expect to get away from it. So any wages that are owed to an employee for up to six months of work, um, they've got to be paid by the corporation. Or if the corporation doesn't pay, the owner or essentially the director of the corporation is going to be held personally liable for those wages. Okay. So employee wages are a huge thing. The other amounts are typically government amounts that are owing. So when you pay your employee wages, you've got to withhold taxes and send those back to the government. Very quickly, when a business starts to go south a little bit, of course, you pay your people, but you've got this money in your hand here. And, you know, it's the government's money. It's supposed to go back to the government. But quite often, that money gets used in business operations and a government debt can build up that debt the director is going to have to pay personally as well so again the liability limitation of a corporation it doesn't work for things like employee wages for employee source deductions and also for gst so you're doing transactions you're collecting gst similar to the employee wage deductions you know You got this money and you're struggling to make ends meet, should you send it to the government? You absolutely have to send it to the government. It's their money, and if you don't, you'll be personally liable.
0: Now, if I've set up, if I'm doing business just by under my name, that makes me also very... libel oh yeah then
1: you're you're fully exposed and i think that the point of my discussion here is you're pretty well fully exposed (laughs) anyway anyway yeah okay that's the message for most people unless you know there's a lot of complexity you know a bunch of employees or you know a few locations you know have that real discussion with your advisor, or even you know, call us, and we can talk about it a little bit. Of what benefits do you think you'll get by being incorporated? Because there are costs. Every year you've got to do corporate tax return for the corporation, an annual information form for the corporation. You know, it's not thousands of dollars, but it is every year you've got some obligations. Whereas if you're operating as a proprietorship you don't have those obligations. You do your regular taxes, you show your self-employment income, and very clearly you understand that you've got personal liability here for things that the business incurs and for government amounts as well.
0: But the key message that you have right now is the fact that even if you are incorporated, you're still exposed. You still have to pay yeah. out that money for wages. You still have to pay the government their do- what they're due.
1: Exactly. So if someone is listening to, to this broadcast and they say, I've got an incorporated business, I've only got so much money to go around, and I've got to decide who to pay who you pay first is your employees their source deductions and your GST. those are the most important debts that you need to satisfy
0: okay um, what are the what are the things that that business owners uh, should avoid doing when they can see that they're in financial difficulty?
1: Yeah, like like any good thing in life, if you know you got a problem coming down down the pike here, the worst thing you can do is to procrastinate, right? The worst thing you can do is to avoid the problem, put your head in the sand. You I know. was
0: gonna say, so that's not a good idea? That's yeah, unfortunately.
1: <laughs> it's not gonna get better and it will get worse. Okay. Um, because you know, what what can happen is, you know, the longer you wait, quite often, the suite of options that you have available to you shrinks. Sure. So, you know, if you've got some suppliers and you need them to work with you and give you extended terms and you know, not enforce when you're delinquent. They might be open to doing that if you told them right away when you're having problems. If it's three or six months, they've been chasing you, they've had to get lawyers involved, and now you want to compromise with them, it's going to be a lot more difficult.
0: Yeah, I don't know when where, when when pro- uh, procrastination's a good idea on anything, right? Yeah, it just doesn't seem to be a benefit. Mm-hmm. All right, what else?
1: Well, not planning is, you know, a, a Big a- aspect as well. So, you know, really planning about should I be incorporated or should I operate as a proprietorship and what are the benefits there, but also planning out your cash flow. So, understanding, you know, on a monthly basis, here are the business obligations, here's what the government requires each month. And the government very clearly says if you can't satisfy our obligations each month, your right decision is to shut your doors the next day. Mm. So you've got to go through and, you know, understand, are you going to be able to satisfy those obligations in lean times? Because many businesses, they're cyclical. You know, if you're a realtor, you're not selling a whole lot of homes in December, but you've still got tax obligations. You may have other corporate, you know, costs that you have to make each month. So you've got to plan ahead.
0: So who's going to, who, who would be the, the type of person or the organization that's going to help me do that plan? Because that sounds like a really important plan to make.
1: You know, your account is usually a good place to start. Okay. So, you know, whoever's helping you with your financial statements, they can help you set up a spreadsheet. You know, obviously we're happy to, you know, talk in a general sense of, about the business, but, you know, quite often it falls down to the individual. You know, there's nothing new under the sun here. You've got to figure out what's your revenue, what money do you expect to come in? What's it going to cost you to make that revenue? And, you know, if there's a mismatch between those, that's where you've got some issues. So I think sometimes, and I definitely see it in clients that come to see me, they get paralyzed and thinking, I just need the perfect tool. I need the perfect budgeting spreadsheet to get through all of this. But no, you just need to ask some very basic, simple questions. You know, your cash flow can be about three lines. What's my income? What's my expenses? And what's left at the end of the month there?
0: There's no magic is what you're telling me. No magic. All right. What about getting more, uh, figuring out how to get more money, like borrowing money, going out and getting some?
1: Sometimes it can be a good decision if you've done the right plan and you figured out, you know what, I'm gonna be lean for two or three months. I know exactly what I'm gonna use this capital for, extra money I'm gonna inject into the business. It can be the right decision. Most of the time when I see folks, they haven't done that type of a, of a thought. They've said, you know, emotionally, I'm so attached to this business. And I understand that. That could be, you know, a 20-year family business, you know, so much invested beyond the financial in it. But you really have to look at, are you throwing good money after bad, you know, borrowing more money to invest quite often the business isn't going to be able to borrow that on its own. You're going to be borrowing that personally. Right. And if you set up as a corporation, you've tried to limit some liabilities. Again, you're losing that limitation of liabilities. So you may be putting yourself personally at more risk by continuing to invest in a business if you're not sure it's going to make it.
0: And I I always sort of see the emotional side of these things too. That could be a really difficult decision for some folks, especially if it's not just a family thing, but like a dream business, right? Like I've wanted to do this all my life. I can't believe it's not working.
1: Yeah, and you know, quite often just shutting down the business doesn't necessarily mean it's the end of the line. It doesn't mean you can never- Right. do this work, you know, quite often people will shut down a corporation, they may go through a bankruptcy or a consumer proposal, and they may start up, even while they're in the bankruptcy or in the proposal, a very similar business, but starting fresh. Right. Starting fresh without all the hangover of 20 years of, you know, financial, you know, artifacts behind you, of obligations, of leases, of different things like that.
0: And having learned a whole bunch of really important lessons yeah. too, right? I mean, it makes sense to me that there's a there's a smart, thoughtful way of doing something and then there's the other way. Yeah. And if it gets you to that smart, thoughtful way, then, boy, it's a good, it's a good thing at the end of the day.
1: Yeah. And, I don't know. And, and the, well, the time to have all of these discussions and all of these, these plans are when you're not in the eye of the storm, right. right? You know, if you're already, the business is insolvent, it can't honor its obligations each month, you know, your personal assets are already at risk. At that point, the worst thing you can be doing is trying to say, well, what do I need to do now to structure, to protect myself? It's too late. You have to do it. You know when the business is solid, when you're starting out, structure appropriately.
0: Now we we've, we've touched on the personal resources. You don't think it's a very good idea uh, to accumulate personal debt to support the business. What about personal guarantees? I mean that. You know I can see that that that's a pitfall that somebody could fall into easily.
1: Yeah, what I don't think is a good idea is signing these types of guarantees or obligations without understanding 100% that this could be called and you might have to be on the hook for
0: it. And that's the key, right? Yeah,
1: anytime you co-sign for anybody, whether it's a business or not, understand 100% of that debt could accrue to you. And sometimes the bank might say, okay, we're going to extend these terms, we're going to give you another six months if you'll agree to give us a personal guarantee on all of our indebtedness. And sometimes the entrepreneur will see no other option but to do that, and then suddenly again they 've compromised all of their personal assets
0: What about widening that scope, getting more people involved, putting getting their money in?
1: Usually not a good idea. Yeah. <laughs> it sounds like a good yeah, idea, Yeah, if, if someone tells you they want you to be a director of their corporation, ask a lot of questions. A lot of questions. Because as soon as you're a director, you can be on the hook for any new liability, corporate tax, sorry, not corporate tax, but um, source deductions, GST, different amounts owing to government.
0: Mm, and That sounds like small print stuff. Hmm. Right, paying attention to the small print of what what your obligations are.
1: Yeah, you may sign on as a director not appreciating that you actually have a lot of responsibilities to make sure this thing operates correctly.
0: You're listening to Blair Manton with Sands & Associates. I'm Elaine Scollin. The show is called Dollars and Cents. Sands & Associates, experts in helping you get out of debt. For more information on any of the services we've talked about, go to the website, sands-trustee.com for more information. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine and with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. Get a financial fresh start by calling 1-800-661-3030 for a free consultation and to find an office near you. Darlene Mullen is on the line with us right now. Darlene's an estate manager as well as a qualified insolvency counselor and member of the Sands & Associates Community Engagement Team. Uh, Darlene's uh, got tons of years of experience, over 15 years, helping folks with debt management solutions. Darlene, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Elaine. I know uh, this community engagement team uh, that you're a part of uh, sounds like a very integral part of Sands & Associates, and it's such a great idea to get out there and and talk to folks. You must love doing that.
2: Uh, Yes, and I agree. It is really great to get out there, and I do love doing it, Elaine. Uh, at Sands & Associates, we feel it's essential for people to be well-informed about their own situation.
0: And it's kind of nice because what are, the, what are the sort of events that you guys end up going to and, and, uh, and talking to folks at?
2: Well, we typically attend trade shows. So a few years ago, we attended a national financial literacy conference, and we realized through conversations with other financial professionals that there was a huge lack of knowledge about debt management solutions. And actually, there was a large desire for information about the insolvency process as it relates to the public. Yes. And so we thought that if professionals, such as accountants and financial planners and lenders, were relatively unaware as to what sort of legal options were available um, and how they worked, that surely there was also a major lack of information being passed along to consumers. So since then, we've attended many public trade shows, like I say, each year, um, like home shows and whatnot. Uh, to give people an opportunity to chat with us face-to-face in a really relaxed atmosphere.
0: I was just going to say that. I mean, it's so great to be at those kinds of events because folks aren't going there thinking they're going to talk to somebody in in your area or, you know, uh, talk about their money problems or debt issues. Uh, And to have that opportunity, uh, I know one of your partners. Uh, I see her every month. Uh, So it's so I'm sure I, I just can't imagine what a great job you guys do each each time you get out there.
2: Yeah, I I would say it's, um, you know, it's really satisfying being out there and sharing information. It's this uh, community engagement team has really provided uh, an opportunity for the curious to ask questions and for SANS and associates to promote financial literacy uh, and get people talking and generally just have conversations about finances and what to do. You know, if they or someone they know have debt, so we really enjoy being out at these trade shows. And is there kind to
0: is there kind of a specific uh, uh, question, or, or there is a series of questions that people always tend to ask, or information they're wanting from you when you're out there?
2: Um, I think um, uh, generally, uh, you know, sometimes people are surprised, as you had mentioned, to see us in that atmosphere. And uh, so really curiously they will come and start talking to us and, and um, just inquire about what the process is about. And um, many people are quite shy, and so um, you know, we'll just actually offer information on how we can help people, how we can help people with tax debt and, and other things. So um, we really actually try and engage people when we're out at these shows great Um, to bring them in and make them feel comfortable.
0: Well, let's do some of that right now. Uh, We've have uh, lots of good questions to ask you. Uh, The first one, if I could start, what's um, what how important is it for folks to be aware of their debt options? How important is it for them to know what they are?
2: Ah, uh, Very important. I think Uh, there's those that are in debt, and uh, those that feel they're not in debt. And then there's those that have no debt. Mm -hmm. So for those that are are in debt, uh, owing money can be very stressful and have a a huge impact on them, uh, their mental and physical well-being, and uh, oftentimes people have made quick decisions to deal with debt, including possibly getting rid of assets that they didn't need to, and so in that rush to deal with their debt, they may have obtained uh, guidance from the wrong places. And then there's those that feel that they're not in debt, as we know, most of us have some type of debt, even if we feel that it's manageable. <laughs> and quite often, it doesn't take much to shift from manageable to unmanageable. So should one already have the knowledge uh, to to do what to do or not to do, they'll definitely be better for it. And actually, really, what we discovered um, at the trade shows is those with no debt, and uh, quite often we would... Um, meet with people and speak with people and even if someone has no debt there's chances are that they know at least one person that does and so it could be their child or their parent or their grandparent it could be a a good friend or a colleague or even a client and at least if that person is familiar with the options um, or an idea of who uh, a person can see they'll just be an amazing resources for somebody um, just by pointing them in the right direction
1: that, that's a great point, Darlene. And obviously, you and I work work very closely, so I know your approach is, you know, even if we can't help the individual person, let's give them the tools so that they can help others and be a resource. And it is as much as 10% of the population at some point is going to have a very significant debt issue that they might need help with. So it may not be you, but definitely someone in your life that you care about is going to be see- seeking some guidance. And the more of a resource you can be, an individual, that that's that's great. Uh, now, I wonder, Darlene, just knowing that you're one of our, our most experienced estate managers in the last few minutes here, can we focus a little bit on some of the advice that you give your, your clients? Um, and I wonder if you've got you know a number one piece of advice uh, for people seeking help with their debts.
2: I would say that my number one piece of advice for people seeking help with debt and um, uh, would be to contact a licensed insolvency trustee like Sands & Associates. And I really can't emphasize this enough, Blair. Mm-hmm. Um, we know licensed insolvency trustees will review all options so it's the best place uh, to come so that somebody can be informed about all their choices and the initial meetings are free.
1: What are people worried about when they come in for that, for that meeting? Obviously people have a lot of apprehension and, you know, everyone's a little bit different, but over years of practice, what what do you think, you know, is, is really people's hesitating factors or worries as they walk through the door?
2: Often people are worried that they're going to have to give up their assets For example, um, their vehicles or maybe they've been contributing to RSPs for many years. And so when they come and see us, we can bust those myths and most often people can keep their assets. And this is really why they need to come see someone like Sands & Associates first.
0: What do you actually tell them, Darlene? Let's say I walked in the door and said, oh, I don't want to give up this and I don't want to give up that.
2: Yeah, well, to, um, to keep it short... Um, You know, we look at the person's situation, and quite often um, maybe they might own a vehicle uh, and there is a a, a certain value of of a vehicle that is exempt, so they're free to keep it. Um, Sometimes people are in maybe a vehicle financing, and if they can afford to continue to pay it and want to, then they can retain it. And really, a lot of people don't know um, that there are RSPs that any contributions made more than 12 months before... um, say, in uh, an insolvency proceeding, like a proposal or a bankruptcy, uh, they get to keep those RSPs. So we meet a lot of people who had liquidated their RSPs to try to pay down their debt, and it still wasn't enough. Um, So when they come and see us, we can explain all that to them.
0: Yeah, it's like brand new information for folks walking in the door, isn't it?
2: It really is, yeah. What would you say,
0: sort of as we wrap this up, most rewarding part of the job for you?
2: The, uh, <laughs> um, when I'm able to help someone move past their financial difficulties and really see that they're no longer paralyzed by their debt, because we often see that, um, and instead they're looking forward to planning their future and enjoying you know, the meaningful aspects of their life, being with their family and, and planning for their future, um, that's very rewarding, and also the process can be life-changing for people.
0: Darlene Mullen, thank you so much. A perfect example of the kinds of folks that work at Sands & Associates. Darlene's an estate manager, a qualified insolvency counselor, and member of the community engagement team. You may have even already met her out at a trade show or a home show. She's got over 15 years of experience, uh, like many of the folks that, that work at Sands & Associates. Just a, a ton of uh, good information and uh, and a compassionate nature to help you work your way through the process uh, in the process the best way possible for you. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. Uh, I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands and Associates. If any of this resonates with you, you'd like information, more information, the website easy to get to sands-trustee.com or the phone number 1-800-661-3030 for a free consultation. We'll be back with more right after this. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates, helping you get out of debt. For information on any of the services we've talked about on the show, go to sands-trustee.com or call 1-800-661-3030 for a free consultation and to find an office near you. Now we're going to talk with Shane Ramsey, who's CEO of BC Housing. bchousing.org is the website, and just in case, and I went on the website, it's chalk. Full of good information for folks uh, just in case you didn't know bc housing develops manages and administers a whole range of subsidized housing options across the province they also carry out lots of research and education that benefits the residential construction industry consumers and the affordable housing sector and uh, shane ramsey's with us he's been ceo of bc housing since may 2000 welcome shane thanks so much for joining us
3: It's my pleasure
0: Now, it's no secret that uh, residents of Vancouver and the Lower Mainland were all feeling the pinch of climbing costs of living, let alone our housing costs. Uh, BC Housing talks about all the different resources uh, that may be available to individuals facing those housing challenges. That's what we're going to talk about or at least start talking about today, Shane.
3: Great. I look forward to it.
0: Great. So what kind of role does BC Housing, what kind of role does BC Housing's policy play in the province? Can you talk about it sort of in an umbrella? Uh, what's the umbrella that you that you cover? And then we'll d- dive in a little bit.
3: Sure. Thanks. Uh, and thanks for having me on. Um, BC Housing is a provincial crown agency. It was created in 1967 and largely to manage government's commitment to subsidized housing, and that was its primary focus early on. Its mandate has evolved and changed since then, but we develop, manage, uh, manage and administer a range of both subsidized and affordable housing across the province. We also have responsibility for the Homeowner Protection Act. That's a builder licensing, uh, home warranty system. Um, every builder who builds a home for sale in British Columbia has to be licensed. And we're also uh, a National Housing Act insured lender. So we do play a major role in um, social and affordable housing um, lending. The mortgage portfolio is in the range of uh, $2.75 billion currently. And mm-hmm. so we, we touch every aspect of the housing continuum, right from emergency shelter and housing for the homeless. Uh, through to transitional and supportive housing, uh, independent housing, rent assistance in the private market, affordable rental, and more and more looking at um, opportunities to promote affordable home ownership as well.
0: Now, I know you, you said that subsidized housing was the original purpose of uh, the organization being set up, and you've been there since 2000. What would you say the biggest the biggest change is for BC Housing's focus uh, and sort of the housing situation that we face now?
3: Well, I think largely up until the late 90s and early 2000s, um, the role of BC Housing had really been in the area of um, subsidized housing for uh, families, uh, seniors, and people with disabilities especially when the homeless crisis began to hit in the late, in the late 1990s and the early 2000s, a large focus changed to, um, uh, changed to a focus on, on options to um, assist folks that were struggling with homelessness, at risk of homelessness, particularly those with mental health and addictions. And so a lot of work done over the past 15 years uh, focused in that area. And also lately, looking at that whole continuum and, and then an emerging focus over the last few years on affordable rental and affordable ownership and so that rounds out you know government's um, involvement across the housing continuum.
0: It's kind of a hard thing to take on right I mean boy oh boy Lower Mainland is like the number one place that people want to live these days Uh, not everybody can afford it Uh, it's a huge task that you guys have undertaken.
3: Yeah, for sure. And uh, affordability is certainly uh, acute in, uh, in the lower mainland, but also is an issue uh southern Vancouver Island, the Okanagan, and communities across the, the north and the interior. They may have different types of, of issues. Some relate to the condition of the housing stock, some relate to affordability, and a lot relates simply to availability of good quality rental housing.
0: Can we talk specifically about where BC Housing's been able to really give folks a hand?
3: Sure. Um, uh uh, happy to talk about that. Um, really, have um, worked with our, our partners in local government and with the health authorities in trying to um, deal with the with the emerging issue of, of homelessness. It's a very complex issue. Um, it really has um, uh, it's multidimensional. Ha- has a lot of um, issues around mental health and addictions, and and it often manifests itself as as a housing issue because that's where we see folks um see folks um struggling, and, and so really. It, it's about creating those partnerships with local governments with health authorities with the private and non-profit sectors around uh, around uh, creating opportunities to move folks inside with the appropriate range of supports and, and and that's a real difficult challenge we see it especially across the lower mainland with um, you know the 10 cities that begin to uh, spring up uh, the 10 city that happened in victoria over the about uh, about a year ago, and even in some of the smaller communities across the north the interior and the valley, um, all, all struggling with uh, with that issue.
0: What can you do? What can BC Housing do, or what are you trying to do to assist folks?
3: Uh, so a, a number of uh, of things um, have have worked quite well. Um, rather than treating homelessness as as just a homogeneous issue. Um, there are outreach teams uh, nonprofit outreach teams that operate in communities across the province, and those try to connect with homeless folks where they are in the park uh, under a bridge by the by the river and get them connected into into services. Um, our shelter system in in and around two thousand and six. Uh, was gradually changed to a 24-7 operation. So rather than that cycle of of homeless folks uh, lining up at night and then leaving in the morning, shelters now, 95% of them open 24-7. And the purpose uh, during uh, opening during the day is for folks to connect with um, outreach teams to look at um, housing opportunities, to look at uh, connections to health services, income assistance, even um, education and um, employment opportunities. And so, uh, you know, a lot of effort around around the individual connections to try to break that cycle of homelessness.
1: That sounds like like a, a great approach, Shane. And, you know, from, from our perspective at, at Sands & Associates, you know, we often feel that, yeah, finances is just one piece of, you know, a suite of challenges that people are facing. And, you know, sometimes housing is a big component that they've got to sort out before they can even, you know, think about, Dealing with with a debt situation, now in, in the clients that that I see, um, you know, sometimes they do have you know some participation in BC housing programs, and I'm wondering, you know, for listeners out there who might not have a good idea, uh, you know, the nuts and bolts of how these programs actually work, could you give a bit of an overview of you know the rental assistance program to start?
3: Sure. Um, so there are a number of of. of Uh, of programs you know there are the the system of emergency shelters and transition and supportive housing but there are also major programs that provide rent assistance for folks in the private market and there are two main programs there the shelter aid for elderly renters program assists some uh, seniors 60 and over uh, with rent assistance, uh, that they pay to their private landlord. Uh, there are almost 22,000 senior households that receive safer assistance, and oh. that totals almost $200 a month. There is, um, a similar program for rent assist, called the Rental Assistance Program for low income families making under, uh, $35,000, and there are almost 10,000 families receiving that assistance, and that amounts to about $400 uh, per month uh past couple of years, we've also introduced a homeless prevention program, and that provides rent assistance to homeless folks um, to get connected with units in the private market, and those, comes with, those come with much-needed supports so that folks are checked in on and making sure that they have a stable tenancy. So that suite of programs provides rent assistance to folks in the private market and a lot of information available on our website about how to apply. Uh, you can apply online to uh, to any of those three programs.
0: I'm wondering, uh, too, if somebody's listening right now, besides going to the website, uh, Shane, is there, is, is, there, is there an easy way for folks to get a hold of you or to, to get access to BC Housing to ask those questions, especially if somebody's listening who has somebody within their family that could benefit um, from one of these programs?
3: Oh, sure. Our, our 1-800 line will get you right to, um, right to our applicant services. Uh, department and they can explain the whole range of options from you you know the 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 actual physical housing that you can apply for as well as the available programs that could that could provide support for where you're living right now if you qualify um, you would get that monthly um, rent assistance uh, for uh, to help with your rent in the private market so calling the 1-800 line uh, our, our folks will take you through the range of options that could be available to suit your individual circumstances.
1: That's great, Shane. And um, I work in in my Langley office quite a bit. And I just know a number of my my clients, Um, you know, the SAFER program is literally a lifesaver for them, they would not be able to be in the place that they are in right now without that type of assistance. So you know, I do encourage folks to to reach out. Um, Now, just asking, you know, some of the the, the detail there. So SAFER, for example, is that standard subsidy across the board? Is there some qualification? If you're over age 60, obviously, that's one qualification, but are there other parameters?
3: yeah so we would look at um, we only subsidize up to an eligible rent level mm-hmm. and 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 so that's also available on the website. One of the useful tools uh Blair, on the website is um, is a rent calculator, so a, a person could go on, put in their um, income, any available deductions, and, and that would assess your eligibility and, and also give you a number of um, of w- what um, you could expect to receive in either the rental assistance program or the Shelter Aid for Elderly Renters program.
1: Okay, so it's, it's that straightforward. There's a mathematical formula, you can put it in online, then get a sense of whether you can access these programs.
3: That's, that's exactly right, yes.
0: Has BC Housing uh, played, or what kind of role have they played? We have a lot of new folks uh, arriving in British Columbia on a regular basis. Uh, do, is there a role that uh, BC Housing plays with helping those folks get settled?
3: Are you um, uh, speaking about refugees?
0: Yeah, refugees for sure. If we, if if that makes sense for this,
3: sure. Um, yeah, we do partner and have partnered with the Immigrant Services Society of nice. British Columbia, um, uh, assisted in the development of their new facility on Victoria Drive. Um, we we also worked with um, ISS uh, with refugee families. Uh, took uh, some refugee families into our own. Uh, direct managed housing stock, we, we own and manage of almost 6,000 units of housing across the province, most of it in the, in the lower mainland, and also work with our nonprofit partners who also housed um, assisted in housing refugee families, again in partnership with the Immigrant Services Society of British Columbia.
0: How many people work for BC Housing, Shane? Because, boy, oh, boy, you guys have really got uh, tentacles out into all areas.
3: We have about um, 700 employees, and our, our budget in the last fiscal year was $1.3 billion. Wow. And we assist about 105,000 uh, British Columbia households each and every day. Wow. wow. That's
0: extraordinary. You know, I think that's really good information to folks, uh, for folks to realize uh, how well a crown corporation can work and at a real grassroots level.
3: Yeah, real partnerships with uh, with with communities, especially our nonprofit partners. One of the things uh, and stories that um, when I'm out talking with folks, um, uh, they're always amazed when I tell them about how many developments that we have under construction. So in British Columbia today, we have um, 62 developments under construction. They wow. comprise 2,700 units and a value of almost 600 million dollars. We have another 75 projects. Under development, so those the, that meaning that um, those that meaning that um, those developments are funded. They comprise almost 4,000 units at a total value of more than a billion dollars. So those 137 developments are in various phases of construction and approvals, total um, 7,000 units and uh, $1.6 billion in in total value.
0: Wow, that's extraordinary. We've been talking with Shane Ramsey, CEO of BC Housing. For more information, bchousing.org is their number. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin with Blair Manton from Sands and Associates, experts in keeping you out of debt. Now, Blair, um, probably one of the scariest words, pretty much for anybody who goes about in the world paying for things and and having you know bringing stuff home after you've gone shopping, would be um, bankruptcy. Being told you can't do that anymore, or whatever you have been doing, you can't do that anymore. Mm -hmm. How does bankruptcy work? Today, how does bankruptcy work in 2017?
1: Yeah, you know, it, it's a word, it, it lands like a, a thousand pound weight, right? There's so much emotion, so many connotations to the word of bankruptcy. And, you know, quite often bankruptcy is is not what you think. You know, most of the time people think, well, bankruptcy is the end of the road. It's the end of life. It's the end of the line for me. I'll never
0: be able to show my face again. That's what I think.
1: Yeah, people think it's a public admission of failure, for yes, example. absolutely. In general, almost to a person, it's completely the opposite. It's a means of rebirth. It's a means of starting over. It's a fresh start. The words in the actual law are, it's a fresh start for the honest but unfortunate debtor. So Hmm. Canadian Parliament have said, if you've been honest, but you've been unfortunate and you find yourself burdened by way too much debt... Bankruptcy is your means to start again. It's actually a wonderful thing. If you're a corporation and you go into bankruptcy, that's the end of the line. Everything is sold off. You don't emerge typically. If you're an individual, you emerge, you have all your faculties about you. And in general, it's not as intrusive, as hard, um, as you know, demeaning perhaps as some people might think. Uh, it, it's actually a very standard legal process. It happens almost 100,000 times a year in Canada, almost 500 times a month in BC.
0: Wow, 500 times a month. Yeah. That's amazing.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, without a doubt, Elaine, someone in your life, people in my life, it's about 10% of the population on a grand scheme of things will eventually have to do either a bankruptcy or a consumer proposal. It touches every walk of life.
0: Okay, so I've come to you. I've said, Blair, I need your help. Um, I can't manage anything, financial in my life right now. What do you do? Where do
1: you start? Well, the, the first thing is just taking stock of the entire situation. So let's figure out how bad is the situation and you know what, what can be done to fix it. If it's a case, okay, well, you can't afford anything because your rent is, is way too high. Well, bankruptcy is not going to help you with, with lowering your rent, for example. Okay. If you can't afford anything because... Canada Revenue Agency or student loans are taking a half or third of every paycheck because you've got an unpaid student loan or tax debt. Okay, that's something bankruptcy can help with. So part of bankruptcy is making sure that before you go through a process, you're in a situation where on a monthly basis, on your reasonable necessities of life, you can handle those. You've restructured yourself that your budget's okay, but you've got this massive amount of debt that you just can't handle both. You can't afford to live and pay your debts that's when you would need the help of a bankruptcy
0: and they're big and they're big debts and they're big companies that are wanting my money whether it be a credit card so a bank or banks um and i don't know it could be my utilities as well right Mm -hmm. i'm behind on hydro i'm behind on my telephone i'm behind on all of those things that i need so how do you go about um so you so we lay out everything Mm -hmm. this is what i owe this is what i can't manage anymore then what
1: so in order to go into a bankruptcy, essentially that the price of admission is you have to legitimately not be able to pay your debts. So when we sit down for initial consultation, we're figuring out a bunch of a big questions. So first off, what does the person own? So for most people that come in to see us, um, they've got very little, you know, maybe they have real estate, but if they do, it's usually mortgaged right up to, you know, 90, 95% or whatever. Maybe the reason they're coming to see us is because they put the down payment on credit cards and now they've got way more house than they can afford. Right. But we look at all of their assets and we figure out, okay, if the person were to go into bankruptcy, what would happen to those assets? Most of the time, people think they lose everything, but the average person keeps absolutely everything if they go into bankruptcy. So first off, yeah. So if someone walks in and they, they've got a car, they tell me about the car and they think, but you're going to take that car if I go bankrupt. Well, not necessarily. So the government puts out certain exemptions. And if a car is worth less than $5,000 and you file for bankruptcy, it doesn't matter what your debts are. You keep that car. You don't pay anything extra. You just keep it. Okay. For the most part, people have financed a car. And as we all generally know, if you finance a car, the car depreciates way more quickly than you're financing. So, you know, you owe more than what the car is worth almost for the entire time of, of your loan. Um, in that situation, that's not really an asset you would lose in bankruptcy. You would just continue to make payments on the car. What's a huge one, Elaine, and if people remember nothing else about assets in bankruptcy is RRSPs. So it breaks my heart that people don't know that if you've got a bunch of RRSPs and you have a bunch of debts, you could cash in those RRSPs to pay your debts, but you don't have to. Nobody can force you to cash in your RRSPs. And even if you go into a bankruptcy, where theoretically you're surrendering certain assets, whatever you have in your RRSPs, that's yours. You don't have to surrender that.
0: That's really interesting. I wouldn't have thought that at all. I would have thought that would have been the first thing to go.
1: Right, and up until 2009, it was. So it was incredibly unfair that if somebody had a company pension plan, they went into bankruptcy. You've never lost your pension in bankruptcy. But a private pension plan, like an RRSP, you would have lost. Since 2009, the government said, OK, let's fix that injustice. But still, I see people coming through the door who are well, trying to do the right thing, but have really compromised their future retirement by cashing in their RRSPs. Right. So part of the first meeting is looking at all the assets that a person holds and saying, what's at risk? What's not? What's going to happen? And anybody that files for bankruptcy, you don't do it the day you walk into the office. We're going to meet at least three times. We're going to answer every question. We're going to make sure you've got a good sense of how this is going to finish before we ever start.
0: Hmm. Interesting. Bankruptcy affects so many people, not just the individuals, but all the individuals in my life as well. Mm-hmm. How do you guys help the person deal with that?
1: Well, part of the bankruptcy, you know, financially is a piece of it, but you know, financial problems are often one piece of a broader sense um, series of issues that are going on. Mm-hmm. So the top causes that send people through the door are job loss, you know, their relationship breakdown uh, it's illness so there's a bunch of different factors that are really shocks to a family we can fix the financial point of view and part of bankruptcy is you have to attend two counseling sessions so bankruptcy is not a case where it's you know an easy in and out you're cleansed of your debt and nothing changes inside you sit down with a counselor for two in-depth sessions talking about budgeting about credit rebuilding and what we try to do with those sessions too is also to identify are there other resources that are necessary are there other connections we need to help you make with some support networks. For example, we see a lot of clients near our Richmond office who unfortunately spend um, time and money at the casino to to their detriment. They'd be the first to say it. So often a lot of those clients, part of the counseling is connecting them to doing a self-exclusion, to getting some specific gambling counseling. It's not often these things are at no cost, but you just need to know how to access the resources. How to
0: access them. So what if I'm working? What if I've got a job and I'm getting wages and I have to declare bankruptcy? Mm -hmm. What happens to that money?
1: Yeah. So what happens in a bankruptcy is you're not bankrupt for six, seven years or anything like that. Like most people think you're bankrupt usually for nine months, sometimes for a year and nine months or 21 months. What makes a difference is your income level. So if you come into us and you're not working or you're earning Minimal wages, which the government says the poverty line for a single person is around $2,100 per month after tax. Mm -hmm. So if you come in and see us and you're earning less than roughly $2,100 a month, bankruptcy runs for nine months. You have to report your income for each of those nine months. And what you have to pay is a flat rate of $200 per month. So instead of paying any of the debts that are included in the bankruptcy, you still pay your rent and your hydro and things like that, um, but you pay the cost of the bankruptcy at $200 a month for nine months, and then you're finished. You're discharged. No matter how much the debt was, the average person, it's around $40,000. It could be 140000 It could be a $1 million. It's all discharged at the end of a nine-month bankruptcy, provided there's not other factors that play, any fraud or things like that, which are very minimal.
0: Okay. Uh, just a final question, and, and this will be the last one for this segment. Uh, how do how do I file taxes for the year of bankruptcy? And I, I think mm-hmm. this is where you guys really play a significant role because yeah. you know how to do this
1: stuff. Oh, absolutely. And that's one of the... the the greater benefits of bankruptcy that nobody thinks about is we do your taxes. So for the year you file for bankruptcy. Oh, interesting.
0: Okay. I didn't yeah. is- expect that to be the answer. Oh,
1: yeah. Save the H&R Block fee or, or whatever. Yeah. Uh, we have to do the taxes. I It's basically see. by law. And what's great about that, too, is if you're a few years delinquent or even more than a few years, which sometimes happens, yeah. bankruptcy gets you back on the grid because the trustee has to get you caught up. So okay. you have to give us all the info, but it's not the case. Give it to your accountant, and spend thousands of dollars. As part of the bankruptcy administration, we help you get caught up with taxes back in the good books with CRA.
0: Great. You're listening to Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. The show is called Dollars & Cents. I'm Elaine and Sands & Associates, experts in helping you get out of debt.